It's now my very great pleasure to introduce Jen Blatz. Um, Jen joins us from, if I'm not mistaken, once again, Jen joining us from Texas in the United States. Thank you for joining us and welcome to Design Research. All right. Thanks so much, Steve. So great to be here. Thanks for everybody who's uh, attending. I assume you can uh, hear me okay. I can see um, you and I hear need, you just fine. I need um, screen sharing privileges, Steve. Let's get that organized for you. There you go. Thanks. Just like magic, Jen. <laughs> there go. we go. Voila. All right. Over to you. All right. So assuming you can see my screen. All right. Yes. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we have a lot to talk about. So I'm going to go ahead and hop right in. And But the first thing I want to do is share some images with you. So when you look at this image, I want you to think about what do you see? And about how about this one? What do you see when you see uh, look at this image? And how about this? What do you see when you look at this image? Well, I'm guessing that you probably maybe saw a couple of different things in these images. And so what's going on here? Well, our mind tries to make us feel comfortable in the world around us as quickly as possible. So simply put, our mind plays tricks on us. And sometimes when our brain jumps to conc uh, conclusions really quickly, like it did here, sometimes it makes stuff up. So when we see a couple of things in one image, like here, maybe you see an upside down bathtub. And then maybe you also see an animal looking thing with four legs in the air. Well, this is known as the pareidolia effect. And for some of the big words I'm going to say today, I want to say them twice just to make sure uh, you know how to pronounce it. And that's pareidolia. And what that is, is a cognitive bias where you see patterns, inanimate objects, or maybe even subliminal messages in something. So a classic example is seeing a dog shape in the clouds. And like I said, pareidolia is an example of a cognitive bias. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Before I go too deep, just quick intro, uh, my name is Jen Blatz and I'm a lead UX researcher at a company called Rocket Mortgage in the United States. I also co-founded a meetup group known as UX Research and Strategy, started in Dallas, but we're now international. Um, we actually have an event happening right now that I had to hop out of to come over here today. This is way more fun. All right, enough about me, let's get back to the topic. First, let me say that I do not come from a psychology background. And I think that this is really important to emphasize because I don't want you to worry that this is going to be some stuffy or highly academic talk. No way. I also want you to understand that people outside of psychology, like UX designers, researchers, product owners, developers, engineers, and so on, we can all benefit from knowing a little bit about cognitive biases. Why? because we all have them. And what I hope for you to do today is to show you some ways to identify cognitive biases in yourself and in others. And that really is the first step. Being aware of, of what a cognitive bias is can help, you from can help you from letting them creep into your design or your research work. 
So today I'm going to talk about a few things. First, I'm going to give you a high-level definition of what cognitive bias means. Then I'm going to talk about what to look for in yourself and in others so that you can recognize what a cognitive bias looks like. Then I'm going to talk about how you can fight them off. And then finally, I'm going to talk about some ways that you can use cognitive biases to your advantage. Yes, you can even use them for good. So let's start off with the basics. What is a cognitive bias? Well, according to Wikipedia, everybody's favorite source, a cognitive bias is a systematic pattern of deviation from norm or rationality and judgment. Uh, what? <laughs> like I said before, it's a way that our brain plays tricks on us by jumping to conclusions about the world around us. It's mental shortcuts. We can't help it. The brain just does it without us even knowing. All right, so we know what it is. Why should we care? We're not psychologists, right? I'm assuming that most of us are here in the UX world or working in technology of some, um, some fashion. Well, as a UX professional, we probably have heard that it's important to test our designs with users. And in doing so, we must be very careful not to bias our tests or like lead the witness. And for those who may not be familiar with that phrase, lead the witness, I mean asking questions in a biased way that might cause a person to answer based more on the way we ask the question rather than the genuine answer that they could give us. So being aware of how you might do that, even if it's unintentional, is a key to a successful usability test or even when you're working with others on your team to solve a problem. If we can recognize a cognitive bias and that it can be a problem and we're aware of the signs, then we can fight the urge to fall down that dark hole <laughs> and we can help others do the same. So now let's get started by looking at some types of cognitive biases and how they might creep into our professional world. Well, we might as well start off with the most important person in the room, and that's you. It's funny, we always think that we're immune from the problems and the flaws of others, don't we? So blind spot bias happens when we see ourselves as less biased than others. And also, we're displaying blind, blind spot bias when we point out the biases in somebody else rather than seeing it in ourselves. The key thing to know here, I think, is that everyone is affected by blind spot bias. Sure, people are motivated to view themselves in a positive way. That's natural. I get it. But we're not really any better than everybody else. So what does blind spot bias look like? Well, one sign is that you don't accept feedback from others. I've seen this a lot of times. Someone's ego gets in the way of admitting we might not know something, and this is blind spot bias. So what can we do to prevent it? Well, you got to be aware. Be self-aware that it happens to everyone. Don't think of yourself as above the law. And in the UX world, if you're conducting some, say, user research, maybe it's a usability test or an interview, it's helpful to write down your questions and tasks and have someone else review your test plan. You should always test and pilot your questions and ask another pro to review it. 
And when they do, make sure you take their advice on improvements. Maybe they'll help you by spotting some leading questions. But if you find yourself resisting that help, you might need to take another look at yourself, Mr. Blindspot Bias. Okay, let's talk about another example of a cognitive bias known as the experimenter's bias. And first, let me clarify something when I talk about an experimenter. I'm not talking about some official researcher or scientist like you see in this picture. I'm talking about anyone who's doing some research with users to like gain understanding or interviewing others on the team, like stakeholders, to get information. So I would consider us all exper an experimenter. So what happens with experimenter bias is that the person is sh who's sharing their findings with others, uh, when after they conduct the research, they tend to share the information that agrees with their expectations or their hypothesis. <laughs> and then in other words, they like they promote the things that that went well in their research or in their conversations. And then they maybe forget to mention some of the disagreeable stuff. So let me tell you a story. I was participating in some research in a financial company. And we're sitting around tables, kind of like you, what you see here, and people had different roles. We had an interviewer, a facilitator, a couple of note takers, and our research participant was a woman who was buying a car, and we were asking her to tell us about her experience. Now, I'm not sure 100% of the process of buying a car in Australia or wherever you live, but most of the time in the United States, you have to go to a car dealership and buy a car. It's kind of like a store. And... It's pretty salesy and it's pretty pushy. And so this woman was telling us about the time she went to the dealership to buy a car. So most of the people in the US don't find this to be a great experience dealing with these salespeople because it feels like a lot of pressure. And it's like I said, it's pushy. And so um, this participant was talking about that time she, you know, she was recent had recently bought a car and it was less than fabulous. And so she was telling us about that. And one of the note takers on the team didn't like what she was saying. <laughs> and instead of like silently taking notes, which is what he was supposed to be doing, he actually interrupted the participant and said, what? I've never heard of anything like that happening at a dealership before. Are you sure that's what really happened? <laughs> Oh, yikes. Yeah, <laughs> this is wrong on so many levels. So how can we avoid this experimenter's bias? Well, I think one way that we can avoid this behavior is to use people who are observing the research, make sure they have no personal interest in the outcome of the experiment. So if they're not emotionally involved, they're not going to really care if they hear some negative feedback. But if a person on your team does have some involvement, you need to make sure, as the person who's leading the study, make sure that there are rules and procedures in place for the research project. Remind the person that we're here to gather data and insights from the participant and not to share our own thoughts. So let's go one level deeper than the experimenter's bias and talk about the observer expectancy effect. Okay, so think about that story I just told you where the note taker was like, are you sure that's what really happened? 
Think about how that question affected the participants' behavior. Mm -hmm. I can assure you that it did. So the observer expectancy effect happens when the researcher or whoever's in the conversation, they subconsciously or unintentionally react to a person's actions or what they say. And when this happens, the researcher's actions then influence the participant or the other person in the conversation. So what does this look like? Well, it could be like a surprise facial expression. Like when a participant takes a wrong turn <laughs> or gives a wrong answer, or it might be some noises like, um, you just, you do not want to do this. This is not good behavior. <laughs> so please, if you're ever like conducting interviews or talking to customers or even your stakeholders, uh, think and you're trying to get honest feedback, I want you to think about how the observer expectancy effect, this cognitive bias, can affect your conversation. So let me tell you another story. It was my first week on the job at a company that owns a bunch of animal hospitals. So I was asked to sit in a focus group Zoom online video call where the product manager was going to reveal a new design. So the product manager, we'll call him Dennis because that's his name. <laughs> he addressed a crowd of over 50. That's five, oh, 50 people on this call which included uh, veterinarians and technicians. So Dennis said to his innocent bystanders, here's the design for a new communication screen. Isn't it great? What do you think? Uh, it kind of went black for me after that, to be honest. Uh, isn't this great? What do you think? Well, I thought that Dennis had just stepped in a huge pile of observer expectancy effect. So needless to say, this type of research about focus group and getting the feedback in that way, uh, this ended pretty much after I started there because <laughs> this uh, was not a very healthy way to conduct research. So as a UX designer or, or thinking of the designers on your team, they want the design to succeed. I get it. They push their every pixel in the perfect place and... They put their heart and soul into the design sometimes. And then the design goes in front of customers for testing. And you see them struggle to do what seems like the easiest thing on the planet. So if the designer or somebody's observing, what are they supposed to do? Well, they want to freak out. But you can't let them freak out. Because we're here to avoid tainting the witness. So how can you do that? Well, like I said before, you get someone else to test the designs. Again, if the person testing the designs or having these conversations are not emotionally invested, they're less likely to react to feedback. That's not what they want to hear. And the major point I want you to take away from the observer expectancy effect is you should keep your body language and tone, your voice tone in check. And I would recommend you even recording yourself when you're giving an interview or having a conversation or running a test. And that way you can see some of these subconscious clues and help you become more aware of them. 
and then you could be helped keep them in line and keep them tame. Okay, so I talked a lot about how you can detect cognitive biases in ourselves. Now let's expand that a little bit and how we perceive others compared to ourselves. So the social comparison bias is the tendency to favor people who do not compete with our strengths. You've heard the phrase opposites attract, right? Well, there certainly is some truth to that. I, for one, cannot imagine someone who is as chatty and obnoxious as myself. <laughs> My poor introverted husband is the complete opposite of me in many ways. And humans are constantly evaluating themselves and others in a variety of ways. We look at others to assess them on things like attractiveness and wealth and intelligence and success. We can't help it. Do you know something I do? And it's subconsciously. I don't even realize I do it for the most part. Is when I come to a room of strangers, this was pre-pandemic, of course, um, when I walked into a room, I would look at a person's face and then I would look at their left hand to see if they have a wedding band on. Now, people in the U.S. wear wedding bands on their left hand. I know that varies across the, the world. But in the U.S., I'm looking to see if the, what their face looks like and if they have a wedding band on. I am doing this for men and women. And I have no idea why. It's not like I'm on the prowl. <laughs> it's almost instinctive for me to look at the face and then the hand. This is my way of sizing people up. And when it comes to the technology world, even professionals size each other up. They don't want to look bad. People worry that we're going to bump their ideas off that proverbial pedestal. And this is sometimes why stakeholders or salespeople say, oh, you don't need to talk to users. I already know what they want. And this is why some leaders, maybe even product owners, don't want you to test designs early so that you could potentially iterate on the product. They just say, oh, we'll get the feedback when after it's released. Oof. So how can you prevent social comparison bias? Well, when we hire people for our team, we need to think about the diversity of the people on that team. Diversity and inclusion is a really hot topic these, these days, and for good reason. We should look for people from different races and ages, religions, cultures, backgrounds, locations, to bring in that diverse perspective into our product. Just think about what's happening in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, in that tech bubble that they're kind of living in that one point view. So if we hire people from diverse backgrounds, I believe we can do a lot toward making better products. All right, so I'm gonna switch gears a little bit and talk about things that do not agree with our mental models or our ideas. And I have another fancy word for you. And that is the Semmelweis effect. We'll say it again, because I know it's fancy. Semmelweis effect. And what this is, is the tendency to reject new evidence that contradicts the paradigm of the established idea. So this term originated from Ignaz Semmelweis, and he was a doctor who discovered, wait for this, he discovered that mortality and death rates fell 10 times when doctors washed their hands between patients 
And more particularly, when they wash their hands after doing an autopsy and then going to a live patient. <laughs> it's kind of shocking, huh? I mean, sure, washing your hands between sick or even dead patients seems like a no-brainer right now. But Semmelweis's his hand-washing suggestions, it was rejected by his peers. I mean, I guess every idea has to come from somewhere. So how does this cognitive bias relate to the non-medical world? Well, as we've seen in previous examples, pe people think they know best. And sometimes it's hard to convince them they're wrong. Old paradigms can be stubborn and difficult to break. For some in this meeting, maybe they know what this is. A long time ago, they might have gotten here to check your email or to get on the internet to do some work. And if you don't know what this is, this is an old Apple computer. And then Steve Jobs came along and decided that we needed to be able to access this kind of information from our phone. But this concept had been tried before and failed. And this is a picture of a Palm Pilot, which is an early personal digital assistant. So other items had been created way before the iPhone, but they were not successful. Why? Well, perhaps people were not ready for it yet. But let me say some people might not have been ready for it. And that's where the Semmelweis effects comes in. People, we are creatures of habit. We don't like change. But in order for things to become modern and new, we have to challenge the status quo. And we have to be accepting of innovation opportunities. Shake things up. So I want you to think about what could your Semmelweis, your hand-washing moment be when it comes to breaking an old paradigm and coming up with an innovation idea? Okay, switching gears here a little bit. Have you ever had someone come up with a problem to solve and you wonder, hmm, I wonder how the competition is tackling that same problem? I mean, it's pretty natural to wonder how companies are solving the same issues, right? Well, maybe not always. The not invented here is a cognitive bias where people don't want to accept info or ideas from someone outside of their group or outside of the company. It's the classic, oh, we don't need to know what that group is doing because it's probably not as good as our idea. Oof. This really frustrates me. So as a researcher, my first reaction when hearing about a new problem to solve is to figure out what already, already exists in the world. Why reinvent the wheel? When you look at the, what the competitor is doing, this, as you probably know, is competitive benchmarking or competitive analysis. We look for other products to see what they're doing better. And are there any good features we could steal from them? Or what does that other product suck at? So we don't borrow those features. <laughs> so think for a second. Can you recall a time a stakeholder told you, oh, we don't need to go out and check the competition? I'm guessing that you probably have heard that. Well, that person is suffering from the non-invented here bias. So why does this even happen? Well, I think there's a number of reasons that can contribute to this. And basically, I think it's some of it stems from insecurity. When I'm first assigned a product or research design or, you know, to research, I love to start off with comparing similar products when it makes sense. 
again, partially so that I can see, see what the good features are and maybe steal those. And I encourage you to do the same. I want you to avoid the not invented here cognitive bias so that you don't reinvent the wheel. So I think it's pretty common knowledge that people are social beings. Even the introverts in this conference, and I know some of you are here today, you seek interaction from others from time to time. So this next cognitive bias I'm going to talk about focuses on the things that we do as humans to fit in with the group. Are you familiar with the phrase, bite your tongue? And I don't mean like when you're eating food. I'm talking about you bite your tongue when you want to say something in a group setting, but you're afraid to share your opinion and you're afraid that it might be too different from the group. So you don't say anything. So you bite your tongue. Well, the courtesy bias happens when you don't say, say your real opinion once somebody else has already said their opinion to the group. Even if we don't agree, we don't say anything because we don't want to offend others or we don't want to look bad in front of the group. And I get it. It makes sense. You might not want to speak your true thoughts in front of others because you don't want to say something embarrassing or say the wrong thing. But like it or not, we are social beings and we want to fit in. And sometimes we do this by keeping our mouths shut until we feel safe to speak. So how do we do this? Well, we simply wait for someone else to speak first before we say anything. Have you ever been, I'm sure you have, on a group phone call or, or a meeting where no one speaks after the presenter has asked a question or opinion? It's just silence. Well, one of the reasons for this, I mean, it could be because nobody, you don't know the answer, but another reason for this is that people are afraid to be the first one to speak. Again, they don't want to seem foolish or say the wrong thing in front of the group. And I have a great way to combat combat the courtesy bias in a brainstorming session. And by that, I mean, you're a group of people either around a physical whiteboard or a digital whiteboard where you're going to like come up with as many ideas as possible. And so the first thing you're going to do in this brainstorming session is create a comfortable environment for contradictions. You're going to lay down some rules. All ideas are welcome. We're not shooting anything down at this point. Quantity over quality, those kinds of things. And then after you lay down the ground rules, you go through this process. You write have everybody in the group write ideas down in their own stickies in silence. And then you have everybody put them in the, in the community board, physical or digital, in silence. And then once everybody's put their stickies up together, that's when you can discuss things as a group. And so by giving the group the opportunity to generate ideas in silence, you're giving all people a chance to write their true thoughts. They're not distracted by what other people are saying. And the benefit of coming up by, with these ideas in silence is it really levels the playing field. You give people who maybe don't feel comfortable speaking in a group the opportunity to get their thoughts out. And they can do this before all the chatty people start coming in and making noise. And I point myself as guilty because I can be one of those chatty people. And I really feel like this is an important first step in generating ideas. And it's also a great way to avoid the courtesy bias among the group, right? So I'm switching again 
as you can see, there's a lot of switching here. Let's talk about how our perceptions may have been influenced by things we've seen recently versus something we've seen a long time ago. And the first one I want to talk about is the Bader-Meinhof effect. Yep. Big word. Going to say it again. Bader-Meinhof effect. And this is also known as the frequency illusion. And it's the cognitive bias that happens when something that has recently come into our attention feels like it's everywhere. Like maybe we see a famous person in the news and now we feel like we see them all over the place. Or how about the person who says like global warming must be true because every day this spring is hotter than last year. I'm in the Northern Hemisphere. It's getting into spring yet. But to be honest, we're not even really in spring yet. So how can this be true? This is a generalization. So how does this happen? Well, remember, our brain has to quickly make sense of things. It can't help it. So you probably see three circles, a red one, a green one, and a blue purple one. But these circles are actually made up of little leafy things. (laughs) And our mind loves to make patterns for us. It seeks things it's comfortable with and latches onto those. And in doing so, our brain ignores the things it's not familiar with. So when a pattern or a name rings true, our brain latches onto that. And as a result, we tend to think we see or hear something more than we actually do. So here's an example from the real world. You're interested in buying a green sweater. Hey, St. Patty's Day is coming up and you want to wear some festive green. And you have this idea about this green sweater and now you feel like everybody's got a green sweater. Or do they? So in the UX world, when someone claims that this happens all the time or all of our users do this, I want you to take that claim with a grain of salt. My main point about the Bader-Meinhof effect is you need to recognize that trends may not actually be as frequent as the person thinks it is. It might just be in their mind. So let me ask you, have you ever seen a person ride a really scary ride and then scream the entire time? They're they're screaming in sheer terror like they're being murdered. And then they get off the ride and they're totally happy and excited and they're ready to ride it again. Well, this is known as the peak end rule. So people judge an experience largely based on how they feel at the peak or at the end of an experience. So in this case of the ride, the person is probably feeling relief that the ride is over and they're happy that they survived it. And they latch onto and express this happiness rather than the two minutes of terror that they've just been through. So let me illustrate this peak end rule with another story. My husband and I were in a restaurant where the menu was on like a tablet and iPad. And I was watching him order on this iPad for some research I was doing for a product. He has a gluten-free diet, so he has to order special things like gluten-free hamburger bun. And I watched him struggle going through that menu on the tablet. He's clicking all over the place, hunting and pecking. And he's sighing, he's griping, he's complaining. It was actually kind of fun to watch him suffer a little bit. Uh, But eventually, he found the gluten-free bun for his hamburger. And he placed his order and he was done. 
And when he was done, he said, that was pretty easy. He'd already forgotten all the pain that he'd just been through. For him, the peak of the experience was finishing the task and being done. And that was positive for him. And so therefore, the whole experience was positive. And so as we talk about the peak end rule, I want to take this opportunity to plug one of my favorite research types, and that's ethnographic observations, sometimes known as side-by-sides or field studies. And this is when a person goes, you go into the wild and observe a person, see what they do. Maybe you sit by them while they're working at their desk to understand how they work. Or these photos here, I was in Hollywood in Los Angeles, and I was doing some research for a project that was observing tourists to see how they learn about attractions in the area. And the point here is that you're watching them go through the activity and you're picking on up on those clues that you would only see in person. They are likely to report things very different after the fact. They might not tell you about their struggles, but if you're there, you can see them firsthand. And so this is what I love about ethnographic research. And like the story I told you about my husband ordering the gluten-free food, you can't always take a person by what they say, but you can by what they do. All right, so I know a lot of today's talk has been focusing on the negative aspects of cognitive biases, because sometimes they can be pretty bad. And um, I because I really want you to know the effects and what they look like of, of these fallacies. So that's not the all of it, though. You can use these traits for good. And, and no, we're going to use these cognitive biases in a positive way, not for dark patterns. So remember how I talked about the Bader-Meinhof or the frequency illusion effect? And again, that's the bias where something that's come into your attention, you feel like you're seeing it everywhere. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You can use that comfort and familiarity to guide a, a user through a journey more smoothly. So you can repeat elements in an omni-channel experience. And when I say omni-channel, like they're interacting with your product on multiple touch points. So maybe they start with uh, searching for something at home on the computer, and then they go into the store. And while they're in the store, maybe they pull up the website or the app for additional information. And this is an omni-channel experience, multiple touch points. As someone creating, designing, researching products, you we can use familiar clues like colors, fonts, and common design patterns to make the user feel comfortable where they are. And this helps them make them feel like they're in the right place within the experience. Okay, I have a question. Has anybody here, and I can't see hands, but just think, have you ever assembled a piece of furniture from Ikea? Um, how did it make you feel? Frustrated? Accomplished? I know that I feel like a champion when I put Ikea furniture together. I actually love to do it. <laughs> but I have to admit, I've had some furniture that's been a little less than perfect, like this. This is not me, but I've had some interesting assembly. <laughs> and so the IKEA effect, there's a cognitive bias for that, believe it or not, is the tendency for people to place high value on objects that they partially assemble themselves, like IKEA furniture, regardless 
of the quality of the end result. So why is this even a thing? Well, people have an emotional investment when they build something from their own blood, sweat, and tears. All right, so how does this apply to product design, not just furniture? Well, a user can experience that same effect when they complete a task, like maybe assembling a puzzle or getting some work done in your product. They feel a stronger emotional connection when they complete it successfully. So I want you to consider this feeling when you work on an interface or a product that could perhaps give the user you know, a taste of delight after some success. So my hope is that you maybe found a couple of things funny that I talked about today. I mean, give me a break. I tried to put a little humor in along the way. <laughs> and I've done that because I know that humorous things are more easily remembered sometimes than non-humorous ones. And this is known as the humor effect. So we've all seen something on the internet. I really like this 404 error page. You get to fire the developer that made this error page come up. And this is a good example of using a cognitive bias called the humor effect. So when your company shows something funny, it, it allows users to connect with your company or your product in a more personal and emotional way. Humor feels more conversational or relatable, and it gives your site or your product a bit of a human connection. All right, so how can we inject humor in our product? Well, we could do, do it in a number of ways, words, illustrations, animation. But I do have a caveat about humor. You need to make sure it's appropriate for your audience and it represents your company and the message that you want to send. We do not want to be inappropriate. We are using these cognitive biases for good, remember? <laughs> All right, so let's move on to another cognitive bias that you could use to benefit your product or your designs. And I'm just going to sit this here for a second because it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're not sure who this is, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger. And ooh, it's a lot. It's pretty extra. <laughs> In a world where everyone seems to be trying to one-up the next person, people have to get more creative and extreme sometimes to capture your limited attention. And what that can mean is bizarre material, like humorous material, can be more easily remembered than common material. And thus, the bizarreness effect comes in. This is kind of part of the reason why humans and animals have peripheral vision. We notice things on the move. And in many cases, we notice things that are different. All right, so this seems like a pretty easy cognitive bias, right? Just make everything shocking? I would say no. <laughs> the whole point here is that you want your website or whatever you're designing or what you're conducting research on to stand out in a sea of sameness. I get it. But you also want to be sure that you are not obnoxious and annoying. <laughs> so you can use design elements like color and contrast and, and visual designs to make things stand out. I mean, this is part of the reason why you see buttons as a different color and a different treatment on the page. You can also use animation to draw attention to something. And like I mentioned before, you could use humor. And like I said, the important thing is to balance between being pleasantly surprised and obnoxious as hell. And finally, I'm going to wrap up with the ways that you can use cognitive biases for good with a very important one that we often take for granted. And if you do nothing else 
in the universe as working with a team of designers or involved in making a product some way, please do this one thing. Make good defaults. Like this nice, tidy room here. When a person comes to your website or your product for the first time, you, you should have things set up for them nicely. The default effect happens when we're given a set of options. We assume that the options are the best ones. We expect things to be already chosen for us, so we don't have to set things. Say, for example, when you install an app on your phone, you might assume push notifications are turned off. Ooh. And if not, you find out pretty quickly when you start getting a whole bunch of push notifications that you don't want. I have been there. <laughs> so the person who uses your website or your product assumes the ex expert, or at the very least, the person who created the thing has vetted out the best design decisions for you. And that those are automatically set up in a way to get going. So, for example, when given an option between several, a choice between several options, we as people tend to favor the default one. Humans are lazy. And just tell us the best selection. Like Steve Krug said, don't make me think. So, how can this be translated into designs to promote good defaults? Well, part of the reason. Part of the way that you can do this is keep the marketing and the sales department out of the designing a feature business. <laughs> no offense to people who are marketing on the call. Uh, sometimes they tend to plug in things to an app with a different agenda than what the user wants. So we have to make sure that we try to not let other team members throw in a bunch of features that users don't want or need. Sometimes they just contribute to feature bloat. But really, though, what you can do to design good defaults is to conduct user research and understand how the person normally uses the product and align the defaults to that. And in design, you can package the default with using things like colors, fonts to emphasize the best option. And when you package things in this way, you give the user confidence that you're presenting the right choices to them. That is, of course, if you are presenting the right option to them. <laughs> because remember, we're using these cognitive biases for good, right? Well, to conclude, I wanna revisit a few of the major points we talked about today. We talked about how biases affect everyone, like the blind spot bias. We talked about the need to be careful when we're acting as a person who's talking to others, to get feedback, to not lead the witness. We talked about the need to avoid things like the symbol vice, effect and be open to different and outside ideas. We also discussed our human need to fit in with the group, like the cognitive bias, the courtesy bias. And we talked about how our memory can be skewed when we think we've seen something recently, like the Bader-Meinhof effect. And when we do that, we think we see it all the time. And then finally, we talked about some ways that we can turn that frown upside down and use cognitive biases for good in our design. Now, the cognitive biases I talked about today are just the beginning of what's out there. There's a whole bunch, but I think I hit the major ones that you can take away with you today and take back to your UX work. The main point is to be aware that they exist, 
to look for signs in yourself and more fun to look for signs of them in other people (laughs) and hopefully keep them out of your future designs and discussions because I want you to go out there and build better products without bias. Thank you again for your time. Does anybody have any questions? I know we're probably pretty tight on tight. So uh, let me know. Thanks very much, Jen. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, We've had a couple of questions come through. Let me ask. um, I'll start with a fun one um, sent through. What's your favorite bias? (laughs) My favorite bias. You know, the one I, I... see people do, my husband is so guilty, is the Bader-Meinhof effect. He will fall for something he feels like is a trend. And I'm like, "Mm, hey there, Bader-Meinhof's hitting you pretty hard. And he's heard me give this talk. He's downstairs right now. Um, So he's like, oh. (laughs) So I think that's really important because I think that even when somebody is sitting in your Let's say they're observing or taking notes for your research, but they only see a couple of your participants and they jump to conclusions that everybody else has said that. I've seen this happen in my team when in fact, no, you're the, you know, you're the only, you only heard the two people that actually said that. So keeping people aware that you heard a small segment and don't jump to conclusions about every participant based on the small amount of information that you actually heard. Yeah, I've seen, um, like as an executive in the middle of an interview, they were observing behind the screen, so they weren't interrupting. But in the middle of an interview, disappeared because they heard something that they felt, oh, that's going to be important and I need to go and act on it immediately. Um, <laughs> it was the first of what was planned to be 24 separate research interviews, but they were ready to start making changes. Um, wow. Anthony, Anthony asked the question, um, I'm not sure how you're going to take this one. How might we use cognitive biases to help clients become more receptive to solving a bigger problem than we were originally hired for? Who a bigger problem. Clients, I assume we are, we're talking about like in a consultancy role, right? I think so, yes. Okay. Yep. Well, I mean, recognize them and, and keep that communication open with them and understanding as it's the same with stakeholders, right? Understanding their agenda, what they're trying to accomplish, what's important to them, and flip that conversation so you're addressing those needs and making sure that you are talking about what's really important to them. So being aware of some of these cognitive biases can probably direct your conversations and know, okay, this is this is where their mindset is, this is what they're thinking. And that's a way to kind of I won't say combat because that sounds pretty negative, but, you know, interact with them to kind of flip the tables a little bit. Thank you. Um, One last one from Kai who asks, how do you educate product owners and stakeholders of their biases without offending them? Ah, yeah. (laughs) Like that (laughs) circumstance of uh, that person who was taking notes I and, and interrupted the participant. I mean, that was real. And I about, mm. pardon my French, but like lost my shit. Like I was like, oh, I mean, there was a product owner sitting across the room from me and they saw my face like, oh no, you didn't just say that. Um, I mean, have some conversations, maybe have it in a group setting and discuss yeah. cognitive biases and keep it neutral and not be like, hey, you did this, but like 
maybe have a casual conversation about cognitive, maybe not, oh, we're going to talk about cognitive biases, but bring up a scenario where it involves mm. that. And maybe, I mean, some of it's also how self-aware are they? Are How open are they to like, mm-hmm. oh, blind spot bias, that affects me. You know, that that part of that also has to do with their personality. Yeah. I think you could sit there and do like a, a, a briefing. And I know I've sort of tried some of these things um, where, okay, we're about to conduct research. We're going to go into this activity, be aware, like we all have biases. Um, it can impact the way we think about some things. Here are some common ones. And of course, because we have blind spots, everyone in the room is sitting there going, yeah, you all got blind spots. You all got <laughs> biases, you know, like I'm good. You all need to keep an eye on things. Jen, thanks so much. Thank you.